Pregnant women are vulnerable. They're more likely to catch diseases like malaria, but they're also less likely to get appropriate treatment. Dozens of medicines come out every year through medical research, but most of them are unsuitable for use during pregnancy. Today we'll speak about an inequality at the heart of medical research, the exclusion of pregnant women from clinical trials. To help us understand this situation, we will contact Dr. Helen Barsozio, a medical doctor and malaria researcher in the city of Homer Bay in Kenya. She will give us her perspective as a doctor in a malaria endemic country and as a researcher with a special interest in malaria and pregnancy. Hello? Hello, Dr. Bazozio. Hi, Claire. As a malaria researcher, you are familiar with studies and academic work around malaria in pregnancy. And as a doctor, you meet pregnant women who ask you for treatment. Could you give us an overview of the challenges of malaria in pregnancy? Pregnant women really are a vulnerable population. So because pregnancy in itself creates a biologically vulnerable state, um, starting with uh, the first trimester when the baby is growing um, through a pregnancy when there is a lot of um, physiological change, for lack of a better word. And you see this biological vulnerability, um, so to speak, really play out vividly in the presence of infections, you know, such as malaria and pregnancy. And if we have learned anything, um, using recent examples, like from the global pandemic, such as, you know, SARS-CoV-2, H1N1 epidemic, such as Ebola in West Africa, with HIV epidemics and uh, malaria, pockets of malaria epidemics, it's that pregnant women are really disproportionately affected. And we know that they also, just like the rest of the population, they need safe and effective drugs uh, for treatment. But we, uh, healthcare workers, outside of research, often have very few treatment options because we just don't have sufficient evidence to tell us it's safe to give this drug or what dosage would you need and what dose adjustments do you need to make in pregnancy. And it's a shame because pregnant women are not few people. There are a lot. It's more than 130 million women worldwide who get pregnant each year. So that's a lot of people. And for whatever reason, we tend to marginalize this particular group, which means that we don't have sufficient evidence. And so doctors are left guessing. You give, you try and guess, is it safe to give it to pregnancy, whatever drug it is, is it effective and how effective? It is, um, I think, which is something that needs to be urgently, uh, urgently corrected. Thanks, Dr. Bazozio. So, what are the risks of malaria for pregnant women and their unborn babies? Compared to non-pregnant women, that pregnancy in itself makes you, as a pregnant woman, more susceptible to malaria infection. So, which means that there are more frequent cases of malaria throughout your pregnancy and more severe forms of malaria, severe malaria infections, which is then associated with things like severe anemia and maternal death in some cases. And for the unborn baby, it's associated with, and for me, this is what I find quite devastating about malaria, is the association with fetal loss, which means a pregnant mom might lose her pregnancy and miscarriage. When the baby survives beyond 28 weeks, you would see a stillbirth. And if they survive 
a hostel in, in territorial environment because of malaria. The baby could be born too early. Uh, that's a preterm delivery, or their growth is restricted or it's retarded. And you might think that it ends there. The recent born baby comes out to the world as either being born too early or being born small in size, and their survival beyond the first month of life is at risk, which means that their chances or the risk of a neonatal death or death in the first month of life is substantially higher because of, um, because of these conditions. And you have what you see in in these places, malaria endemic zones, and which poses a bit of a challenge, is not every pregnant woman will obviously present with a symptom, but we still have asymptomatic malaria infections. And and just because it's quiet or um, asymptomatic doesn't mean that it's still not associated with these devastating consequences to the unborn baby. Why is it important that medicines be specifically adapted to pregnant women's needs? Pregnancy is interesting in itself, but you have two vulnerable people. You have a pregnant woman whose physiology has really changed to adapt and be able to carry her baby. At the same time, there's an unborn baby. In the first trimester, our worry is that there's a very sensitive period. Um, It's between four to nine weeks after conception. And that's when the organs of the baby are being formed. And any chemical exposure could put at risk that process of, uh, you know, the organs being formed or organogenesis. Knowing that a medicine could potentially damage the baby's organs, what would you prescribe to a pregnant woman with malaria who would come to consult you as a doctor? When, when a pregnant woman thinks it sits in front of you as a medical doctor, or even as a nurse or a physician, is the first thing you ask yourself is how far along is she in her pregnancy? And um, once you know how far along she is in her pregnancy, especially in malaria and you want to see which region or geography does she come from so you can begin to think about which drugs are safe to give in that particular window in pregnancy. Um, first trimester, this is a sensitive period uh, and the baby's organs are still being formed. You do not want to give any drug that you feel is unsafe. And you want to prescribe quinine. So you write down and you prescribe quinine for seven days and clean the medicine for seven days. And you take it to the pharmacy and they'll tell you there's no drug. And when I walked around the pharmacies in uh, in, in Homerby, I was surprised that they actually no longer stock quinine um, because it's not used. And when we came back and asked, so why is it not widely available? It comes down to um, women will will say the side effects are bad, and when you ask, so what exactly are you giving? And some some of them are open enough to say they're actually giving atomicinin in fast trimester, which is not correct because we don't have sufficient evidence to say that it is conclusively safe. Um, to give atomicinus in, in fast trimester. When you go further down to the patient and see what the preferences are, they will mention that, um, you know, the ringing, the tinnitus, and the, the bitterness of the, of, the, of the tablet or the drug is off-putting. Um, and I do remember following quinine uh, as a child. It's not the most pleasant thing, but uh, it doesn't taste nice. But why do pharmacies not stop quinine? 
women in first trimester who need this drug are not as many as the larger population who actually need antimalaria. And when they stock them, they would tend to expire. So over time, a commercial pharmacy is built in a profit. And so when you go to that commercial pharmacy and if you have a slow-moving drug such as quinine, you don't really have the motivation to stock it, right? Because you're not making any profit from it. However, the guidelines still continue to say, even our local Kenyan guidelines continue to say, uh, to write, prescribe quinine um, in the first trimester. So there is a disconnect uh, between what the guidelines would say and what the actual anecdotal, so this is just anecdotal with the practice even on the, on the ground. I understand that quinine has some disturbing side effects and that it is difficult to find in pharmacies, at least in Homer Bay in Kenya. So how could this treatment be improved? We just need to answer, is, is it safe to give atenismins in the first trimester? Um, current evidence, um, it's not sufficient evidence to tell us if it's definitively safe for, for that label to be removed uh, from an ACT drug to say that it's safe to give it in, in first trimester. Hence, the continued use of quinine. And what do we need to determine if it's safe? When compared to quinine, atenicinin compared to quinine in larger pregnancy registry studies, we need to definitively show that there is no difference in the uh, background rate of congenital malformation between women who receive quinine in first trimester compared to women who receive, um, accidentally receive atenicinin in the first trimester. So once that question is answered, it will be quite a relief for all of us. And what about the prevention of malaria in pregnancy? As it is right now, we are giving sulfadoxin pyrimethamine and daily cotrimoxazole. Now, these two antipolic drugs, um, while they provide partial protection against uh, or prevention against malaria in pregnancy, they are faced with this challenge of very high levels of antipolic resistance. Uh, which then reduces or threatens their uh, anti-malarial effects. What we've, we've seen this reported um, in, in Uganda, in, uh, in Kenya, in Tanzania, and in Malawi. You talk about the need for more evidence and more research about malaria in pregnancy. Why isn't there such research? I, I usually smile at this question. <laughs> because uh, apart from, you know, the the ethical, the safety, and the biological considerations, it is also the perception challenges. And I was looking at history of including women in research. And um, when you look at some of the arguments uh, for including women in research, even before the inclusion of pregnant women, it's the perception that they are biologically complicated. There are monthly changes that happen with hormonal changes, the menstrual cycle changes, and they are perceived as almost complicated to study, and therefore you have to make adjustments for this subpopulation, which means not only is it costly, you also have to get uh, more specialized researchers, you know, who are going to look at these particular changes. How does this particular hormonal interaction affect, you know, uh, how a drug um, changes uh, the pharmacodynamics and the pharmacokinetics? But the other challenge is it's really sufficient evidence for safety in the first trimester. And I would say this is, this is quite the driving, the driving force for a lack of a better word in pregnant women. 
if you're not certain about the safety of prescribing a particular drug in the first trimester, the time when a baby's organs are being formed, the time when they are most vulnerable to any congenital malformation that could result from that chemical exposure, because a drug really is a chemical, then you do not have the confidence as a researcher to include pregnant women. And women are classified as a vulnerable uh, population. There are other additional ethics considerations to put in place, specifically monitoring for safety. And maybe for some researchers, this, this might be perceived as a challenge, maybe extra work or additional <laughs> additional work uh, or additional complications uh, uh, for, for a clinical trial. And is there a way to change the mindset of these researchers to include more women and pregnant women in clinical trials? If I look at how what the landscape of research looks like, I think we need to reimagine research, especially uh, in two fronts, how we design clinical drug trials and make adjustments for subpopulations of pregnancies and women by including, let's say, safety sub-studies as well as uh, those adjustment studies, specifically pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic studies, we can inform not only safety in pregnancy, but as well as doses, the correct doses in pregnancy. But it means that researchers have to reimagine or design clever studies to accommodate this and move out of their comfort zone and possibly expand their collaborations and include researchers who have strengths in this particular group. So in the past, there would be one single researcher with your question. It's good to just include a researcher whose specialty is safety within your collaboration and include a pharmacodynamic and a pharmacokinetic researcher within uh, your, your research collaboration. But I think beyond that, one way to determine safety is to track accidental exposure. We either have to design clever studies or include within our health systems a sort of background pregnancy registry that collects information on drug exposure um, throughout the population at all times, enough to gather evidence to see where accidental exposure to a particular drug occurred, how did it impact the health of the baby. What would be your message to researchers? I, I think it's mostly um, an appeal uh, to researchers you know, to include women, um, and especially pregnant women um, in research, and it really help us reduce the guesswork um, around prescribing safe drugs and prescribing them effectively. But when we look at researching women, and especially pregnant women, you need like a rights-based you know, lens or a social justice lens in the sense that you, you push through the challenges or the barriers, not because it's the easiest group to research on, but because, you know, pregnant women and their unborn babies, they need the best quality evidence they can provide so that they can get the best quality health care for, you know, for herself and her unborn baby during that particular vulnerable period um, of their lifetime. So to give them uh, the best chance of survival and also the best chance, you know, chance to thrive. That it may not just be enough to survive, but, um, but it's equally important to thrive. And if, if researchers, and I probably sound very idealistic as I say this, <laughs> but if researchers were 
a more social justice heart when they think through uh, filling in gaps in evidence for pregnant women in research. But maybe that it could give them a sort of superpower, you know, that allows them to, you know, to jump through the hurdles and the extra measures and probably give them the perseverance to uh, deliver good quality research for pregnant women and their unborn babies. Um, the rights and social justice in research for pregnant women is really important.